Welcome to Ottawa Valley Vineyard, where we simply want to help you encounter Jesus, be transformed, and share His love. Welcome back. Thanks for uh, wrestling through the tech difficulties with us. Huge thanks to Denny uh, for problem solving and Stefan on the phone. Just really, really grateful for you guys. Hall family, thanks so much for leading us in worship. So a couple of weeks ago, we were in the middle of uh, discussing the Great Commission. We were looking at uh, the Great Commission as expressed in the book of Matthew and uh, trying to unpack a little bit about uh, what that meant for us, because it's something that we're fairly uncomfortable with, going out, telling our friends about Jesus, uh, leading people to faith and walking them through the Christian journey. It's all something we want to do, but there are lots of reasons why we wrestle with it. And last week, we positioned ourselves, um, realizing that we don't need to just power up. Like We don't need to become more aggressive. We don't need to become uh, more pumped up to be able to accomplish this, because all of the power and all of the authority belongs to Jesus. And that's how he started in the book of Matthew. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And how he ends the Great Commission in the book of Matthew is, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So this is something that happens under the authority of Jesus and empowered by the Holy Spirit. So we sort of breathed a sigh of relief last week and said, whoa, okay, so this is something that God is doing with us. That left us with a really important question. And that question is, what is the actual task? What are we actually trying to do here? What is the Great Commission? What are the elements of it? Like, how do we understand what it is that we're actually doing? What does it actually mean to make disciples? I wanted to share with you a story of uh, a retreat that I went. It was a leadership retreat with uh, Vineyard Canada. We were gathered with a number of different pastors. There were probably 40 of us. And I can't remember. I think it might have been at Edmonton or Calgary or something like that. And we were there, we're gathered in this big room, and there was a facilitator from a large uh, sort of executive management company or an executive training company who was going to lead us through a game. And what he did was he handed us each a bag of blocks, and I think they were Duplo or something like that, and said, okay, here's the task. You need to design a vehicle that will enable you to transport something across the room and everybody's going to design their own, and then we're going to have a competition. We're going to test the vehicle, and whoever's vehicle is the best is going to win. And so we were all excited. We're all sort of like type A, sort of leadership, kind of aggressive, maybe competitive personalities. I know that I have a little bit of a bent that way. And so we took our team, and we took our bits, and we put them all out on the table, and we worked hard to design it. And what he basically came up with what the obvious thing is that you would use to transport things across a room is something like a little cart in our case. And in the case of almost all the other groups, it sort of looked like a truck. Now, everybody built it differently. Everybody built it strangely. These things had, you know, parts sticking out of them. And some of them had three wheels on the front and some had two wheels on the front and the whole deal. It was just a big mess. And, and, but we were competing. Like everybody thought theirs were the best. The idea was that we would take our creation. Uh, and after we were done, you know, I think there's limited time. We had like five minutes to make these things and present them to our facilitator and he would test them. And of course we would see who's, who's going to win. So we presented our things. We're all excited. I'm fairly convinced I've won because uh, my engineering genius is just beyond compare. And uh, we uh, presented them to the presenter. He said, okay, this is what you're transporting across the room. And he uh, pulled out from behind the table uh, about an eight foot long rubber snake. And I can promise you that a foot long truck 
cannot transport an eight foot long rubber snake across the floor without it dragging and bumping and 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 just it's just gonna ruin it. it's just not gonna work and the moment we saw that eight foot long rubber snake we knew a couple of things we knew that we had one designed a vehicle that simply could not do it we designed a vehicle that was wrong for the task because we didn't know what the design parameters were we assumed that we were carrying something about the size of the parts that we had and we assumed that we were carrying something heavy and we designed something that was completely inappropriate for the task the second thing we realized is that the thing that we had uh, built could in no way accomplish the task no matter how we designed it uh, by itself we spent a lot of time building our individual trucks when what we needed to do was spend time with all of our teams working together building a train and you can take an eight foot long rubber snake and you can line it up on the train and you can have all the wheels that you need to transport that thing across the floor and the same is true with the great commission and the same is true with the church is that we have uh all kinds of passion to get out there and do it. We have all kinds of passion to do the work that God is calling us to do. But if we don't really know what the task is, if we don't really know what we're supposed to accomplish, we spend an enormous amount of time and energy uh, creating things that just don't work to accomplish the task. And if you look at our church and you look at many other churches, I think you could say that uh, from a design perspective, if we look at our major task being to go out and reach the whole world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, there are some design design flaws sometimes in what we do. And so what we want to do uh, with this message is to just take uh, the aspects of the Great Commission, the elements of it, and uh, and ask ourselves, um, what are they? What, what does it actually mean to fill a Great Commission? What are the actual tasks that are required so that we can design ourselves as a church to better accomplish it? Um, in the uh, the synoptic Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those are the three Gospels that sort of line up. John is a bit of an outlier in terms of the structure with which, which it's written. But the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all have different versions of the Great Commission. And what that means is that the Gospel writers were all there. They all saw it happen, or they all heard reports of it happening, but they remembered a little bit different parts of it. Different parts of it were emphasized to them, so that when they relay the story, they relayed their perspective on it, while another one relayed their perspective on it. So we take the whole of their reports about the Great Commission to put together a harmonized version of it to see what the whole task is all about. Um, and so what we want to do is uh, note the obvious things we've already looked at in Luke. We're supposed to go to all nations. Uh, we're supposed to baptize them. We're supposed to teach them to observe everything that he has commanded. So those are the things that appear in the book of Luke. But what we want to do is recognize, one, those things also appear in the other Gospels. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell you to go to the nations. Uh, Matthew and Luke talk about baptism. Uh, Luke is the one who talks about teaching people to observe Jesus' commandments. But then we add Mark and Luke to the Matthew account, and we see that he's talking about the idea of proclamation. So proclamation, actually telling the Gospel story is key. And then we look at uh, Mark's account, and he he is really emphasizing the idea of that we're leading people to believe, the people believing and deciding to follow Jesus and us catalyzing uh, that belief or being somehow involved in the role of helping that happen in another person's life is key. So we put those things all together. The problem is um, that when we look at those elements one by one, we're just going to slow down and do that. Um, we have a certain amount of discomfort with each of those things. If we are going to all nations, uh, 
our culture doesn't think we're supposed to do that. If we're going out to all nations to preach the gospel, to tell people of other religions that they ought to convert to our religion, uh, we're seen as colonizers. We're seen as invaders. Uh, we're seen as people who are out destroying other cultures. That's not something that our culture and our context wants to see the church doing. So we have a resistance to speaking in that way about missions because uh, that's something that uh, that we just are embarrassed about, that people just don't want us to be doing. Uh, secondly, uh, we, we're called to proclaim the gospel. Nobody in our culture wants us to make truth claims. Nobody in our culture wants us to say that this thing is true and that other thing is not, because we live in a highly pluralistic culture. Um, nobody in our culture wants us to cause people to believe in something powerful and supernatural, something in authority above themselves. The idea of a heavenly authority in our culture is almost anathema. We live in a culture where the authority is self, the authority is each individual person, the authority is me. And so to say, hey, you want to believe in something supernatural that happened a long time in the past that has miracles in it and resurrection in it, that all sounds like fairy tales and myths, and why would I believe that? So we go with a sense of embarrassment about the story itself because it's not a story that our culture is comfortable with. Um, we talk about baptizing them. Baptism is something public. People are supposed to keep their faith private. Teaching people to observe or to obey or to follow laws, that sounds like control. That sounds like a power dynamic. It sounds like something that we're also told in our culture that we're not supposed to do. So how do we take this Great Commission and understand it in the way the early church understood it so that we can see that it's something dynamic and powerful and wonderful and needed and something that our culture uh, is actually dying for. So how do we see that? And we're just going to tackle uh, two of those to begin with. Today, we're just going to tackle, go to all nations and proclaim the gospel. And then the following week, we'll, we'll tackle the next. So with each of these two, we're going to ask these questions. What is the actual task? What's God calling us to do? Uh, why does it seem so hard? What is the resistance that we have to each of these tasks? And uh, three, how can we overcome? How can we see it in a way that's a little bit more positive? So um, I want to talk to the talk about the idea of going to all nations, and I want to start there in the Mark text because um, Mark expresses it like this. He says, "Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation." And so it seems a little bit redundant. Like he's almost saying, "Go to the whole world and proclaim the gospel to the whole world." If we if we sort of read it fast, we sort of gloss by uh, those sort of two different expressions of whatever out there is. And uh, but the idea here is that Mark is using two different concepts for a couple of different reasons. One, uh, when he talks about cosmos, he's talking about a Greek concept. So his Greek readers are going to understand that as what's out there. Uh, his Hebrew readers are going to understand a uh, whole creation, created thing, under the idea of them having like a holy and creator God. And that's going to be understandable to his Jewish readers. So he's speaking to both Greeks and speaking to Jews in this context. But there's also two slightly different nuances to those ideas. When you think about the cosmos, the reader who is listening to Mark would be thinking, hey, that is like space. That is like the stars. That is like the heavens. It's the whole ordered universe. Everything that is ordered physically uh, from the ground uh, to the heavens, and they would have had a different construction or understanding of what that was than we have. Uh, we have got, had satellites in space and men on the moon and telescopes that look out in the universe. So we have a different idea of what the cosmos is than the Greeks did. But the same idea is that it's everything big that's out there. And it's not only the physically ordered universe, but it's the 
materially and the morally ordered universe. So talking about uh, the organization of the way people think, uh, the organization of the way the words work, the organization of morality and what is right and wrong and what is true. And so that's an idea that's included in Mark. And then the other idea uh, is this idea Kitsis, which is the idea of the small, the idea of the created things, the bugs and the flowers and the people who are scattered across the world. So what does this mean for us? What does this do for us as the people who are reading Mark and who are listening to it and are saying, where are we supposed to go? What are we supposed to do? I want to just show you this image. Um, this is an image that I think I've shown this before in various sermons, but it's an image of a deep field view of the, the sky. So what you could do is you could stay on some dark and starry night is you could take your thumb and you could sort of hold it up and you could sort of block out, uh, sort of the, the darkest part of the heavens where there's the least stars. And what they did with the Hubble telescope was they took the darkest little square of the sky that they could focus on and tried to capture as much light and as much of the image as possible in that and see what they could see beyond what we can see in terms of the visible universe. And this is the image that they produced. It was a massive image. Um, this is cropped. There's much more to it. And it's, of course, in much higher resolution than we have. But each of the dots that you see on your screen is a complete galaxy. It's a complete galaxy. It's our, our, our most detailed photo of the cosmos. And I was listening to an interview with Billy Graham uh, on the Johnny Carson show, uh, probably done sometime in the 70s, I would think. Uh, it was sort of not that long after um, the sort of space race and that sort of excitement about what was out there was going on. And Billy Graham is talking about his calling as an evangelist. And with, a, with sort of a full heart, he says, you know, if we found somebody on the other side of the universe who didn't know about Jesus, it would be worth the millions and billions and trillions of dollars and the thousands and thousands and thousands of years that it would take to get there for us to go to that place on the other side of the universe and be able to proclaim the person to those people, the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ. For Billy Graham, uh, the mission doesn't end until you know that you've reached everyone in the cosmos. And I don't know that Billy Graham really believed in aliens or any of that, but his uh, faith and his passion and his sense of calling would send him to the farthest parts of the universe to go and proclaim the gospel, uh, to proclaim the glory and the beauty of God. And it would also take us to the smallest and tiniest and remotest most remote parts of creation. The Kitsis, uh, the image that you see on your screen is Pitcairn Island, Pitcairn Island. And it is the island that was actually uh, populated uh, by the mutineers from the HMS Bounty. Uh, if any of you know that old story, uh, they were in Tahiti and they uh, uh, collected some uh, friends there and some servants and they uh, basically decided, hey, we're not going to connect with England anymore. We're going to go do our own thing. And they went searching out through the South Pacific and found this island and they settled there. Uh, that island is now populated by eight people. 
uh, the, at the height of its population. Uh, sometime in the early 1900s, there were about 170 people there. Uh, in 2004, uh, there were um, 50 people there, but there was actually some kind of massive uh, sexual abuse scandal and a whole pile of people left and there are only eight people left there. And if you want to go there and to be a missionary there, uh, the people of New Zealand uh, and the British Foreign uh, Commission will actually grant you land on that island. If you want to go have a beautiful piece of this island, you just have to say, yes, I would like some land on that island and fill out the paperwork. I actually downloaded the PDF and you can actually go and get land on this place and you can live there. The only problem is, is that it's 2,000 kilometers southeast of Tahiti and 6,000 kilometers from Panama and things only get there by ship. Uh, it's remote, it's tiny, it's small, it's far away. But the commission to go and share the gospel in all the world is that maybe one of you listening here, maybe one of you listening to this message might be the one who's called to go there. Now, in the last message, uh, we really emphasize the fact that the mission field is where you are, that your mission field is here in Carleton Place, that your mission field is in your workplace, that your mission field is in your school. But there is still hanging over us the reality that God is calling us to reach the whole world. Uh, we see that um, in Paul, in Romans 15, when he's talking about going uh, to Rome, at the end of his letter to the Romans, he says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there uh, by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So Paul's journey to Rome was actually about a journey to Spain. And he was like, I got to get there. I've got to go there. It's the farthest part of the known world. That's where I'm called to go. I'm going to stop off in Rome. Hopefully you guys can provide me with some food and some resources so I can buy a donkey or whatever it is that Paul needed to get there. But he needed the support and help to get there. And so we really have three categories of people. Remember the whole book of Romans is Paul speaking to the people of Rome saying, hey, you guys, this is how you reach the people in your region. By the way, I'm going to stop in and I'm going to Spain, right? So you have three categories there. And some of you are like Paul. Some of you might be called to go to new fields. Some of you might be called to go to a whole different place, a whole different country. Somebody might hear the Holy Spirit call you uh, to Pitcairn Island. I don't know. Uh, Every one of you is called to support those who are going. I think that's what Paul is saying in the book of Romans, saying, hey, hey, all of you, I need your support. I need your help. This is a mission of the whole church together. Would you uh, support me as I go and do this? And then I think we can safely say that there is not a single believer on the planet who does not live in a mission field already. You guys are living in a field. We all live in the mission field. And just look at this uh, beautiful farm in Saskatchewan uh, that is surrounded by acres and acres and acres of wheat, millions and millions of heads of grain. And that's how we should feel about the world that we're in, that there is an abundant field all around us with people who need to know about the love and the beauty of Jesus. If we look at Carlton Place, uh, Beckwith, uh, Mississippi Mills, uh, with the way that population is growing right now in those areas. There's somewhere in the neighborhood of 30,000 people in this area who would not call themselves part of any church community, who would not have any faith association whatsoever. We live in the middle of a field. 
So we need to be praying about the Great Commission and saying, hey, what am I supposed to do here? Am I going somewhere here geographically across the street? Am I going across the backyard fence to talk to my neighbor? Am I going out for lunch with a coworker? Am I going for a walk with a friend after school? Uh, am I going on a Zoom call to talk to someone I haven't spoken to in a while? Or am I going to Pitcairn Island? <laughs> And I would be willing, if you called me God, to go to the far end of the universe just for the chance to preach the beauty and glory of God to people who don't yet know it. So that peace geographically is important for us, but uh, that's not even as hard for us as uh, the cultural peace. Um, go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. This is in Matthew's text. That word nations is ethnos. It's where we get ethnicity. So it's not just nation states that we're called to. We're called to go to every people group, every group of people joined together or united by practicing similar customs or common culture. That's a very unpopular idea in our culture. Uh, for those of you that are Trekkies, it's against the prime directive to do that. It is not what you want to be doing. You are not called, as far as other people are concerned, to interfere in people of other cultures and other religions. Um, and in every movie that you've seen, or most movies that you've seen that involve missionaries, Mosquito Coast, The Mission, Black Robe, and there's dozens and dozens, of them. The, the missionaries are villains in these films. Uh, we look at our own history in Canada with the residential schools. Uh, we look at how many uh, Indigenous people in Canada were wiped out by disease when Europeans came. Um, when you think missionary, people in our culture think we're wearing black robes or pith helmets or those gold conquistador helmets and that we're disease-carrying manipulative colonizers that are uh, enslaving and destroying indigenous cultures. When you say missions, that's what people think now. But somehow, we are called to go. We are called to interact with other cultures. We're called to interact. Even here in our region, if you if you look around Carleton Place, I've had conversations with people from Iran. I've had conversations with people from Jamaica. I've had conversations with people from the Philippines, from Sri Lanka, just people you meet in the grocery store and you talk to and you find out where they're from and you hear a little bit about their story. Uh, we live in Carleton Place more than ever in a multicultural society. The nations in many ways have come to us and we are called to some somehow present the gospel to them when that's a very, very uh, unpopular idea. And the church has much to repent for in that. There has been much destruction and there has been much that has been done badly. There has been much that has not been done in the grace and love and humility of Jesus. But I want to speak this truth into that shame. It's a really simple truth. Jesus is good. Jesus is good. He loves people. There's not a single human being on the planet who would not benefit from a relationship of knowing their creator by name and knowing relationship with him and knowing his love for them and knowing that he died for their sins and knowing that he died to save, that he was resurrected, that he was going to move in their life and in their culture, 
in power and in a positive way because Jesus is good. So if you look to the Brazilian rainforest, beautiful, exotic cultures, uh, people carrying spears so that they can uh, kill wild pigs so that they have something to eat. And you think, man, we send missionaries to this place and they destroy this culture. But that person in the rainforest in Brazil would still be better if they knew the love of the person Jesus. And so the challenge for us isn't... Um, you know, to, to just sort of give up and to sort of say, hey, we failed. Hey, we've made mistakes. Nobody wants us to be doing this thing. The challenge for us is to still go. Uh, but our job is to just share as much of Jesus as possible and leave as much of ourselves behind as we possibly can, because this is people that Jesus loves. This is people that Jesus cares for. This is relationship with people that Jesus wants. And so in our broken way, with all humility, doing the best that we possibly can, we are still absolutely commanded to go. A successful mission begins for us with a really surrendered life to be able to go cross-cultural and to actually care for people. So that idea of where we go and who we connect with is hugely challenging. Nobody wants us to do that, but we're absolutely called in the love and grace of the Father to go and enter into other cultures and enter into other parts of the world and to share the gospel just as we are here at home. And the other thing that we're asked to do, and this is the second thing that we're going to talk about today, is simply to proclaim Nobody wants us to proclaim well, we have a long history in the last 50 years of discredited fallen evangelists. Uh, we have uh, a resistance in our culture to any truth claims. Uh, we have hyper-individualism uh, where uh, everybody determines for themselves what their faith, their religion is, and what that means. Every person has a religion and a faith community of one in our culture. Uh, we are uncomfortable with sharing the story because simply we don't sometimes know how to tell it. We sometimes don't know why to tell it. We don't know how to get the words out. We don't know it very well ourselves. Uh, we don't know how to start the conversation. That idea of proclaiming is very, very uncomfortable for us. But the word in the scripture isn't even a light word. It's not like, it isn't just like go and come alongside and sort of maybe sort of whisper something into the person's ear after you've sort of you know, built a whole amount of credibility and have, you know, a long-term relationship. Of course, evangelism works the best uh, when it's something that's happening in the context of relationship. But the word that is used in the text here in Mark is to proclaim, it's to herald. It's when a guy comes into town uh, who's giving an announcement from uh, the emperor of Rome. He comes into town with a whole pile of soldiers and guys with trumpets. And the herald stands up on a box and shouts at the top of his lungs and proclaims the truth that the emperor wants everybody to know. It's a message given with authority. And that image for us of trying to do that in our culture, imagine standing in a soapbox outside of Walmart or whatever it is, that, that image is almost like anathema to us. It's so uncomfortable and so awkward. And, and we, we hate that idea. But the reality is somehow be it through relationship, be it through alpha courses, or be it however we do it, the actual words of the story of Jesus are what saves. 
do not be ashamed for the gospel, uh, of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. That news, those words are where the power is to save. We've got this great get out of jail free card that we hear people talk about in, in seminars and, and sermons all the time. This uh, quote from, we presume it was uh, St. Francis of Assisi, who says, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. The reality is that feels great to us. That provides enormous relief. We can we can mobilize all kinds of social justice actions. We can go to do all kinds of outreach programs. We can do meal train. We can care for the food bank. We can give money to compassion. We can do all kinds of different things. These are all good and wonderful things. But by definition, we haven't gone out and done the Great Commission unless we've used the words. Preach the gospel at all times. Use words. That story has to get out. People have to know who Jesus was. People have to know uh, that he loves them. They have to know that he died for them. They have to know that he uh, resurrected from the grave. They have to know that the tomb is empty. They have to know that story of that incredible, loving, miracle-working, truth-speaking, sin-destroying, life-everlasting, resurrection-living God. They have to know that story. And if they don't know that story, they can't be saved. The story is important. And I want to show you this in Luke, because when Luke is the one, he uses the word uh, proclaim, but he gives us a definition of what he means, what Jesus means when he's speaking uh, to the people. Remember, this is a moment where uh, Jesus is there. He's gathered with his disciples. Uh, Jesus has uh, had, you know, nails driven through his hands and feet. He's been put in the tomb. Uh, They all watched him die. Uh, they all are seeing him now alive. Like they have seen with their own eyes the reality of what has happened to Jesus. He is a living, walking testimony of the resurrection. And so this is how Jesus tells the gospel about himself and commissions his people. He says, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written. And I want to just focus on those words uh, that are highlighted there for just a second. Jesus himself, like like this, this, this floored me when I saw it when I was studying. Jesus himself, who is walking evidence of the resurrection, he is the resurrected one, the ones with the scars still in his hands and feet. He still felt the need to proclaim the gospel using the scriptures. I've heard time and time again, people say, yeah, just don't use the Bible too much. People are freaked out by it. Just tell your own testimony. Jesus didn't even do that. He he used the scriptures while he was gathered around them. So that's the first thing that he wants us to understand is that we are preaching a gospel out of the written word of God. We are preaching the gospel out of this incredible book that we've been given that not only is just words written on a page, not only is it history that we can look into and delve into, but there is something about the written word of God that has power to transform lives. And so our presentation of the gospel has to be a witness and a testimony to the story as it's written as we read it, as we understood it. So that's the first thing. Uh, 
How do we talk about the Bible when no one believes it anymore? We talk about it anyway. We talk about it, of course, humbly. We talk about it, of course, with so much grace. But we start with the scriptures because that's where the story is written and that's where it has power. Uh, he goes on uh, in Luke to say this, uh, So thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Again, that's just the basics of the story. Uh, we can't lead people to faith unless they don't know the story, unless they don't know the story of the cross. They have to hear those words. They have to hear that their Savior died for them. And we have to find more and more winsome and creative and beautiful ways to tell that story. I love, um, you know, some of the video presentations of that. Um, but there's one that's just on YouTube now. It's just gone from my brain. But um, there's the story of the gospel is, is just something that has to be told and retold. And if you think of your own life, your own journey, those of you that have been in the faith for a long time, you probably heard the gospel story told to you dozens of times before it went deep enough that you realize that Jesus was your savior. So we can't be ashamed of this history. We can't be ashamed of these events that actually happened. We have written record of them. Uh, we have incredible number of manuscripts that point to the veracity of these documents. So there's, there's something that we can stand on, something we can lean on. When Jesus talked earlier about uh, the um, the authority going with us, that's a part of the authority. The scripture is authority that goes with us as we tell the story. We're not just telling it out of our heads. We're telling it out of authority. So, so critical, so critical uh, that we be people who just tell the story. And then going quickly, the third thing here uh, is that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be uh, proclaimed in his name to all nations. Repentance is not a popular topic uh, with your friends around the water cooler. <laughs> Repentance is not something that you want to talk about with your friends. You don't want to tell them to turn around and live a different way. Nobody wants you uh, to do that. Uh, repentance is this idea that you would take your life, you would take the direction you're on, the trajectory you're on, and you would turn around and you would go the other way and start behaving differently. Nobody wants to be told to behave differently. Um, but I think one of the problems with the way we think about it, and we think even looking at it directly in this task, the, this text, repent, repentance should be proclaimed. We're not proclaiming that uh, somebody needs to repent. What if we were proclaiming that people get to repent? What if the power of the gospel that Jesus uh, worked, that that Jesus accomplished uh, through the cross, what if uh, all of that power uh, was understood to be the power by which uh, people can be transformed and changed? If you look at the world, people are actually desperate to be changed. Uh, you look at the, uh, look at the uh, various industries in our culture, the diet industry, you know, there are millions and millions and millions of dollars in pills and potions and uh, all kinds of different uh, programs for people to figure out how to change their nature that wants to eat a lot of donuts and doesn't want to exercise. Millions of dollars in that. People, and in this issue and on many other issues, deep down, we know that there are things inside of us that have to change, that need to change, that we don't know how to change. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus has empowered change. 
He has set us free from sin. Uh, if we look at, um, you know, the gospel is presented, Romans chapter 6, 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's worth a million diet pills, right? He wants to transform us. So part of our connecting with our culture is not to say, hey, you lousy sinner, you need to repent. It's like, hey, you person that wants and knows instinctively that there's sin in your life, even though you might not have that language for it, Jesus died for your sins so that you can repent and turn and change and be transformed. And all of a sudden we're talking about something it is a tremendous blessing and not a thing of fear. Early Christianity was not hindered by embarrassment over the concept of repentance. It was fueled by the freedom that repentance offers. We don't have to repent. We get to repent. We get to repent. And then the idea of forgiveness of sins, uh, we so often believe it's our mission, and you hear it all over social media here, Christians is constantly slagging on the, on the non-Christian world, pointing out the sin, pointing out the failing, pointing out the failures. Uh, the proclamation of the gospel is pronounce the forgiveness of sins. Now, the idea that you need forgiveness from sins is absolutely critical for you to receive it. But listen, that's the Holy Spirit's job. That's what the Holy Spirit does in the conversation. For he has come to convict the world of sin and guilt. And the Holy Spirit can do that with more love and more compassion and more grace than we ever could. So we get, the, we get to be good cop and the Holy Spirit gets to be bad cop. We get to say, hey, uh, you can be forgiven. You can uh, have this burden lifted off of you. And we entrust the Holy Spirit with the task of helping people realize that they need it and they want it. That's what he does. We get to be good cop and he gets to be bad cop. So the Great Commission doesn't tell us to proclaim sin. It tells us to proclaim the forgiveness of sins. The conviction is the Holy Spirit's job. So those are the two things. Uh, we are called to go. We are called to do this stuff. We are called maybe to go to Pitcairn Island, maybe to go to Australia, maybe to go uh, to Brazil, wherever we are called to go. You might be called. You might be one of those who are called, or we might be called, or we are called to support those that are going, like our beautiful missionaries, Don Elizabeth Cantell. And you are called to be one who proclaims the gospel in the field in which you're currently situated. That mission is critical. That mission is something that Jesus has given you and that he has come into your life with authority and with the presence of the Holy Spirit to accomplish. Uh, Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14 says this, and we thought about this at the beginning of the message, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We know now that the glory of the Lord objectively covers the whole earth, that he is glorious in every corner of the earth, that he is glorious in the depths of the sea, that he is glorious in the cosmos, he is glorious in our solar system, he is glorious in our galaxy, he is glorious in all the universe, every galaxy that the Hubble Space Telescope can see billions of light years distant from us. He is glorious. Our prayer, our job, is that the knowledge of that glory would be seen.
we uh, simply have to point to it. We have to proclaim it. We have to help people see it. We have to herald it. And the reality is for us is that there are just a lot of practical things that have to happen for that to be so. Uh, the picture that you see on your screen now is uh, one of the cabins uh, at the camp that I attended when I was a kid. I grew up in a church and uh, had heard the gospel story hundreds of times, I think. Um, the preacher preached it. The Sunday school teachers teached it. Um, yeah, my parents taught it to me. But it was at this camp um, in northern Saskatchewan uh, in an A-frame. Maybe actually this actual A-frame. It might be possible this was the one. I don't really remember. But one night up at camp, um, after being around the campfire, when the camp pastor was gathered there with all of us, he told the story of the gospel. And part of that uh, sort of symbolic um, moment in the, his telling of the story was to take a cross that was out floating in the water and he had some guys quietly out there in a canoe and stage it beautifully and lit, you know, like a hundred candles on this cross. And I still see in my mind's eye uh, the image of the cross of Christ shining out in the lake in the darkness. And in that moment up at that camp, I knew that, that story that I'd heard a hundred times, that story of Jesus Christ crucified for me was true. And probably in, I think my bunk, which was probably somewhere right over there in that very cabin, I invited the Holy Spirit. I invited Jesus to come and to live in my heart. And the reason that happened was because somebody built that cabin and somebody paid for me to go to camp. Somebody worked in the kitchen and cooked the food. Somebody lit the bonfire where all us campers were gathered. My counselor put up with my antics. Somebody built a floating cross that they could shove out into the middle of the lake. Somebody went out in a canoe and lit those things. It's the effort of a thousand people, probably, to tell the story of the gospel in a way that my 12-year-old mind could hear it. And I am so grateful for that effort. I am so grateful for the teeny tiny steps, the guy who pounded nails in the framing of that cabin with the idea that he was building it so that some little punk kid would have a place to go to camp and maybe give his life to Jesus. That's the mission we're called to. You're called to tell your friends you're called to proclaim, and we are called all together. Remember the image at the beginning of this message to build a train together, to build something together, to build a church together that collectively accomplishes the Great Commission.
that Jesus' glory would be known in the whole earth. And so my ask as a pastor for you is, will you proclaim it independently everywhere you are, everywhere you go, every person you know? Will you tell the story of the gospel there? And will you work with us as we emerge from the pandemic on the task of becoming more and more a church that is passionate about fulfilling that for which we were called, being that for which we were made, fulfilling our vocation, called, commissioned, to see that the whole earth is filled with the glory of God. So the prayer, the ask, is that you would go. (laughs) Go to your neighbors, go to your friends, go to camp, go to wherever, but be all about the Great Commission. That's what we're for. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you will come, that you will convict us of this mission. You'll convict us of our fear, uh, all of the barriers to us telling the story, all of the reasons we're scared of it, all of the reasons we're frightened of it. Would you come by your Holy Spirit and help us to see that it's doable, that it's possible, that it's beautiful, that you are good to everyone you encounter in every culture on the planet. Would you take our lives and use us as your vessels, use us as your heralds, use us as your messengers. Don't let us be silent. Don't let us be non-contributors. Don't let us be consumers, God, of religion. Let us be missionaries. Let us support missionaries. Let us see the field that we're standing in and do the work that we're called to do. Work in us, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of Ottawa Valley Vineyard, visit ovv.ca.